Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Z Siddiqui, and I'm a first year student at MIT Sloan. Yeah. It's my pleasure to introduce today's panel, Basketball Analytics, Hunting for Unicorns. It's also my pleasure to introduce today's distinguished group of panelists, starting all the way on the right, Mike Zarin, Assistant General Manager and Team Counsel for the Boston Celtics, Zach Lowe, Senior Writer and NBA Columnist for ESPN, Paul Pierce, NBA Analyst for ESPN, Bob Myers, General, General Manager and President of Basketball Operations for the Golden State Warriors. And today's panel will be moderated by Howard Beck, senior writer for Bleacher Report. Today's panel will last 45 minutes, with 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, you can do so via Twitter using the hashtag basketballanalytics. And the tweets with the most mentions will be selected by our moderator. And with that, I'll hand it off to Howard. Thank you. Uh, this is Basketball Analytics uh, Hunting for Unicorns. We'll figure out what that means in a minute here. If you were looking for the research paper on the effects of Daryl Morey's beard on team dynamics, that's down the hallway. Um, Tough crowd. Okay, note, 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 note to self, don't He's make- not that good a beard, don't, that's don't, the problem. Don't make Daryl jokes at Daryl's convention, note to self. Um, so as, as we were discussing this backstage, the first thing, of course, was everybody staring at me blankly saying, well, what do you mean by unicorns? Um, so, uh, but I'm gonna turn that back on, on all of you. Uh, the first time we heard this, I think, in the last couple of years was Kevin Durant putting that label on Chris Epps Porzingis, and I think it's now expanded to a bunch of other players. Um, you're the Durant whisperer, Bob, so I'm gonna start with you. Uh, what, what, do we, uh, what do we mean by, by unicorns? What significance do they have in today's game? Um, what do we mean? I think, I think what we mean is um, something that shouldn't exist, or actually we know doesn't exist. So it's, uh, it's the high, highest level of rarity in an athlete or a basketball player. I suppose that's what it has to mean. Um, it's reserved for somebody that um, kind of stretches the limits of reality, or for if it's Porzingis or whoever it is. I mean, my definition would be somebody that has size, huge size at their position, and, and great skill, and so when you have a player like that, and then Durant could be labeled that as well, I think. Um, and Paul knows this, when you're playing basketball, knows it better than anybody. If you have a size advantage, and a skill advantage, and even an athletic advantage on your opponent, there is absolutely nothing they can do to bother you. So if Paul was 6'10", and had the same skill and everything he did, he would walk out there on the floor every night and feel like there's nothing you can do to stop me, because I have, I have the whole package. So for me, a unicorn, I mean, Magic Johnson might have been the first unicorn of 6'9 point guard. Um, to me, that would be the initial unicorn because you can't do anything with that guy. Now, could he have been a better shooter? He probably would have been in this area. But to me, that's, that would be my definition, but um, I'm sure there's better ones. Well, Paul, I mean, you played with Kevin Garnett, who, I mean, I think was very much a unicorn in his own right. What did that do for you guys? What did that do to opponents? Um, 
Well, for one, I think the unicorn is just like a player that you haven't seen skill-wise coming to the league ever. And with Kevin Garnett being one of the first guys that you saw at seven feet who can guard pretty much all five positions, can, can shoot a shot, we haven't seen a player with that skill level. And, and it really changed the game as far as how we played defensively because when you got into mismatches or switches in our pick and rolls, he can pretty much disrupt every part of the court defensively. And uh, so, you know, it was something we haven't seen uh, as NBA players throughout the course of time. Uh, a seven-footer who can guard a point guard, two guard, three guard, four guard, five guard. So, uh, you know, that changes the game pretty much when you have that component uh, on your team. So I feel like this is actually, you know, uh Maybe it's just when I say the, five guard today because there's, there's all five players are guards anyway. There's no such, well, so, there's right. no such things as centers and forwards. This, but this is right. part of the point, right? We're we're in a moment here in the NBA where um, you have a, a seven foot point something in Giannis, point Giannis. Uh, so there, there's one brand of unicorn. Uh, Jokic yeah. might be another brand of unicorn. There's Embiid is in, in some regard. Zach, how many guys do you think actually fit in this category? I mean, who should we be be uh, placing this? label on and is this just going to keep going is there anything better than a unicorn is there any mythical animal that's even like Giannis is whatever that is that's what a centaur is. maybe He's above a unicorn is there a centaur in the league centaur is not as good as you know a rod ruins pegasus I mean, he's a cold place. Yeah, Giannis has to be something else. <laughs> I, don't, I think, Bob, I don't know how many. Like, I thought of Durant, actually. I'm glad you brought up Durant because I think he, like, he's seven feet tall. Like, he, he should be part of it. I think Bob nailed it. Like, when the, the Warriors obviously didn't invent small ball, but they sort of made people rethink, like, the limits of it by playing Draymond at center. And small ball is really just like, what if everybody can shoot and pass and play make? And unicorns are like, well, what if everybody can do that, but they're also big? And that's, that's the end game, right? And that's what he meant about the size advantage. Like, I think Carl Towns, I think we're sleeping on how good Carl Towns is. He put up 40 again last night. I think the base definition is if you can shoot threes and protect the rim, you're, you're unicorn-ish. And like that, that's, where, that's where you got to start to look. All right, so if, if this is this emerging... Shaq will, be I would say Shaq will be considered a unicorn. Oh, yeah. In this era, right? He doesn't shoot threes. I, I, well, Shaq is... This is something Shaq we is, haven't really seen. Is Boban a unicorn? <laughs> We've seen Boban before. We have not seen seven Boban. six. How, how tall seven, would six. Boban be with a, with the unicorn horn? No, I'd be like eight feet. Um, <laughs> no, George Mirasan. That's true. Fair, fair. Um, okay, so if, if we are if if we're in a, I think um, George Mirasan would come on. <laughs> Talk about Mirasan. <laughs> If we're if we're in this moment, uh, and this is this this player type that's emerging, um, do you then need a unicorn to contend at the highest level? If you don't have one, are you seeking one? Or are you trying to find guys who can de defend the unicorns, Mike? Without me setting you up for any sort of tampering or anything, do you need a <laughs> unicorn who might be out there somewhere in the uh, landscape? I mean, I think the the beauty of the NBA is that there's a lot of different ways to win, um, and so. You know, one of, the, one of the interesting things that's going on is it seems like the game is sort of moving more towards everyone's playing the same style, but it's not really happening that way, right? Milwaukee looks really, really different from Houston, looks really, really different from Golden State. Those, Milwaukee and Golden State do not play the same way, even though people say they do. Um, and, and, you know, part of that's just the personnel that they have. So I don't, 
I mean, it depends how sort of how you define a unicorn. If it's just any rare mythical beast, like Shaq is one, then Steph uh, Curry would be. If one. Steph Curry's a unicorn, then then sure, you need a unicorn. You need a really good player or two to to win. Um, but if you if you're asking, do you need a Porzingis type? I, I don't think so. Well, I mean, for purposes of this discussion, though, and I think just generally because Unicorn began with the Porzingis model, right? And so we've expanded to like maybe like, oh, 6, 10 to 7, whatever, who can play big but also play out on the perimeter, maybe handle the ball, shoot threes. Uh, it's helpful. It, it's helpful. Yeah. So, all right, so you guys may run into a couple of those types uh, in, in the playoffs. Do you need somebody who can be like the, the Giannis defender? Just like at one time there were people loading up on bigs to try to at least beat up on Shaq for a minute. I think anytime you're up against a player on another team who's a really efficient scorer, um, you got to find a way to stop him. You know, we've, we've done that a few different ways. Um, you know, a guy like Shemi Ojale, who is not a well-known NBA player, was very successful defending Giannis in the playoffs last year just by being really strong and not letting Giannis by. Um, you know... His issue uh, has been he's not been an, an amazing shooter. Uh, and I think that's what everyone in the league is scared about in Milwaukee is if he starts to shoot really well, it's, it becomes much tougher to defend him um, because you can't really block a shot of a guy that tall. That, that was KG's thing on the elbow jumper. You could never block it. Uh, and so, you know, that's what, what makes people fearful when you have a big guy who can also shoot, it becomes much, much more difficult to defend them individually. And then you have to start bringing help defenders. And if they can also pass, um, you're in trouble. Are we getting to a point where every team, you know, forget the, the, whether or not everybody's playing exactly the same. Does every team at least need to in, uh, you know, have like a, you know, a Brooke Lopez who is, is, is your, your three-point shooting center. Uh, you guys go small with Draymond. Uh, you have Al Horford. Uh, is, is that, if nothing else, is that now essential? That you have to have some five-man lineup where your big, whatever big is, is now, uh, is also a stretch player? I, I think, first of all, this is a copycat league. So everybody tries to emulate whoever the previous champion is. And being that we're in an era where Golden State has been dominating in that aspect, since they featured that when they throw a Kevin Durant at the three or at the center, it's like other teams look like, well, that's what works. We have to be the same way. Do you need it? I don't think so. Um, you know, the thing is with these NBA teams, they, their style of play is pretty much created around their best player. So you can say we can emulate the way the Rockets or Golden State or Milwaukee plays, but you have to... Play to the strengths of your best player. So, like, say, for instance, Milwaukee. Giannis is not a great three-point shooter, so what we'll do is surround him with three-point shooters because he's such a great driver and getting to the rim. So do you need a center who can shoot threes? It helps, obviously, with floor spacing because that's the way the league is going. You need floor spacing for your best players. So if your best players are great at getting to the basket and shooting threes, you have to have players around them who can kind of spread the floor. Um, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the center. Right, so here's how we look at it, right? The, the, the best offenses in the league now are scoring like 1.16 points per possession or something like that. You gotta get that somehow. So if you're gonna get that by guards getting to the rim, you don't want your big there to have another defender there. So your big's gotta be somewhere else and you don't want that defender to just leave him there anyway. So if they can shoot, it really helps. Now, if we had Shaq on the team, uh, you know, prime Shaq, 
uh, not the later Shaq that we had later, although he was still really good with us, um, but prime scoring Shaq. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you'd need him to shoot at all in today's league. You'd just post him up and have him do his thing, and you'd get however many, you know, you'd, get, you'd do fine at, at, at 1.16 or better points per possession offensively with Shaq posting up. Just not the case uh, with a lot of guys posting up. So if you're not going to have a post offense, you're going to set up an offense where a guard's trying to get to the rim and you don't want the big there. It used to be like, it, I remember not that long ago, it was like, well, you, you can't win in the playoffs unless you have, unless every lineup you play has three three-point shooters. You can't, if you have, that was like the tipping point. If you have three guys who can't shoot threes very well, you're going to have a problem scoring. And even your team still will play lineups like that where they have three. But now it's like you need four three-point shooters. It, it just feels like that's the baseline minimum. Obviously, there are exceptions, but it's amazing how fast the league has changed. I was talking to somebody from, from the Rockets yesterday, and, like, we're not that far from when they played Portland in the playoffs. They had Ashik and Dwight on the floor together. And, like, now that's just, like, unthinkable. Like, that's impossible. Like, when they were starting Fareed at power forward because they had injuries, it was like, well, they clearly don't want to play. The average offense then was scoring, like, 1.05. Right. No, it's, it's amazing how fast that – it's, like, unthinkable now. And then you look at someone – like, that's why I think the Kings are really interesting because in Bagley and Giles, they, they have a front line possibly with two unicorn-ish guys playing together. Maybe if they can make that work, they're really interesting. Bob, is, is this where we're going, Bob? And, and for Mike, too. I mean, as you're, you're building out rosters and looking ahead and, and trying to figure out <clears throat> how to stay at least slightly ahead of the curve if it's possible as, as rapidly as things are changing, I mean, is, is Zach right? Is it now, do you have to have four three-point shooters out there and are we getting to the point where it's just going to be five and is that going to be the whole league? I mean, is that, I mean, it, it feels like as, as rapidly as, as the three-point explosion is happening that it, it seems inevitable that we're moving toward that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not as complicated as we sometimes make it. I think when you build a team, you want the biggest team um, that you can have because the basket's 10 feet tall. <laughs> it's never gonna change. The closer you are to that, the better you, your team will be. If, he's, if his reach is three inches longer than, the neck, than mine, that's a problem. <laughs> that means that, that rebound we gotta get at the end of the game to win the game, he's gonna tip it to his teammate, we're gonna lose the game. The, that two inches of space, his wingspan versus mine, if I can have a bigger team, we talk about this, we don't, I don't think, we don't advocate small. We just put the best five guys on our team out there. That's something I think Don Nelson might have pioneered and D'Antoni did a lot of that. So when we, Steve went small, it wasn't we want to be small. It was these are our best five players. We're going to play them. So I think when you look at it as far as what, which way is the league going, um, you want to have players that if you're looking at the boxes you check, can he dribble? Can he pass? Can he shoot the three? Can he get fouled? Can he guard his position? Um, rebound, all these things. As many of those boxes you can check makes you a better basketball player. And, and, and everybody here is watching the regular season, and Paul can notice the playoffs are nothing like the regular season. They are two completely different sports. The way it's officiated, uh -huh. the, the way that he's playing 42 minutes uh, in the playoffs. I don't know what he averaged in the regular season when he was playing. So, so your bench is completely different yeah. in the regular season versus the playoffs. Uh, and you can prepare guys, differently. Uh, you it? can prepare differently. Absolutely. You have more time. And you do prepare differently. <clears throat> yeah. Not only can you, you do. And you better believe Paul listening to Doc as his coach in a regular season back-to-back -back game, he's going in the locker room. He's like, all right, who am I got? You know, in the playoffs, <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. Right. And by the way, in the playoffs, his first move is gone. It's like a baseball player that they say, well, here's our scouting report. He cannot hit a curveball away. Mm -hmm. He's getting a curveball away every single pitch. 
So if they say, Paul, take away his right hand, right hand drive, and the pick and roll are gonna blitz, whatever they know he does well is gone. So that's where you need to check as many boxes as you can. Even shooters. We played some great shooters in the playoffs and have neutralized them. Because if that's all you can do is shoot the three, then you're not, you're not necessarily the weapon that we sometimes make you out to be in the regular season. That two, in, two feet of space you had in the regular season is two inches. And you watch how many players cannot make a shot in the playoffs and shoot 42% in the regular season. It's not the same thing. So why does that matter? The more dimensions you have to your game, the harder you are to take away. Shoot the three, get fouled, get to the free throw line, drive to the basket. Well, how am I going to go, Paul? What, what should I have done against Paul Pierce? I'll let him shoot three. No. Um, let him go to the rim. No. Foul him. No. Um, keep him off the free throw. You, there, there's too many things he does. Left, right, whatever. Oh, and by the way, let's pick on him defensively. No. That's what makes a Hall of Fame player. So you want as many of those guys as you can. So we can't get too caught up in like, Let's have four shooters. Okay, well, what if those guys can't do anything else, can't guard right. the position? So I think it's more than sometimes we make it out to be. And, and the people here, I assume, are basketball fans. You watch the playoffs, you'll know who can play basketball. That's when you evaluate players. Mm -hmm. Well, fortunately for Paul, he invented the step back three. Might have. So. But I, haven't, I didn't invent the step back, step back. <laughs> <laughs> That's new. I wish you had that. I wish I had that. <laughs> um, Shaq's name has been invoked a couple of times, and it is a curiosity. So let's just take this to the logical ex extreme here. Well, there's, there's two aspects of this. Let me try this one first. Uh, we wouldn't think of Shaq as in any way, shape, or form the, the modern version of the NBA big. That, that model went away. Uh, but maybe just because those guys don't exist, I, I don't know. If Shaq shows up tomorrow to play in the league, I assume he's still just bulldozing everybody on his way to the basket. You're talking about a young Shaq, not the current Shaq showing up to not Right, not the one who, yeah. who was on TNT last night with uh, Jet and Jet. Um, yeah, no, prime year Shaq. He obviously, um, he could handle the ball a little bit, just ask him. Um, he, he could shoot if asked, just, just ask him. But he's, he's not Joel Embiid, right? He's not Anthony Davis, he's not Carl Anthony Towns. What would it look like if we dropped him in, in the league today? And, and defensively as well. Sign me up. I still think he'll be dominant. Because the, there's not many back-to-the-basket back players. Imagine Shaq in a four-round-one offense to where you have four shooters, and you just drop it to him, and if you double-team him, you'll get open threes all night. And if you let him play one-on-one, he'll be just as dominant as taking a drop step and dunking the ball every time down. Because you would, just, you would surround him with, with compliments him as him being your best player. And so it'll be a different style. It'll, it'll still be the same. It'll be probably a great three-point shooting team he's on. So if you're saying tonight, we're going to take away Shaq. Well, as a team, I'm going to surround him with four pretty good three-point shooters. So now every time you took him away, if we throw him the ball, he's going to find a shooter uh, to knock down shots all night. And M so he'll be just as dominant. is the closest thing yeah. in terms of how the Sixers use him to Shaq. I, do, I think it's my favorite thought experiment. What if we could plant prime Shaq in the NBA now? Because everything you're saying is right. Like, to, like he's, you, you, there was no human being who could guard him one-on-one. -on -one. It, no. it was not possible. He would just mow you down and dunk. That was it. Um, but the rules changes. Like it, his, it, would be harder, it would be easier to prevent entry passes to him you know, than it was when he played in terms of the illegal defense rules then. 
and you could show help in different ways. Like he would learn how to navigate all that, but I think it would be fascinating to see. Like it, wouldn't, it wasn't just as simple as when like the Rockets had Olajuwon, you dump it to Olajuwon, double team, kick out three. Like it, it wasn't, it, it's not that simple anymore. The biggest pushback I've gotten on this question from coaches has been on the other end. And we actually confronted this when we signed Shaq um, in 2012. 2012, right? Yeah. Um, everybody said, well, you can't, you know, the modern NBA defense is switching and veering. Uh, you can't do that with Shaq. He's going to get caught and exposed out on the perimeter, especially the later Shaq. Um, uh, and what we found, the, the lineup that we had with Shaq, and it was the best lineup in the NBA that yeah. year. Um, and it was, it was really unfortunate he got hurt um, because I, I think that, that, team was, that team was much, much better than, uh, than the, the end result was that year. But he, what we found was people didn't want to go near Shaq. So... You could just play super soft. I mean, dr drop even defense where he wouldn't come anywhere near the pick that was being set. Yeah. You just have the guard chase the shooter over the screen, and and they were going to stop and take a long two instead of going into Shaq. Well, like, he, nobody was going near Shaq. He, and if you look at the shot distribution when he was on the court of the other team, there were so many more long twos when he was playing. I think it would be exactly the same thing today. People are not getting to the rim against Shaq. Well, our strategy was Shaq because Shaq would be in uh, before the game was right. say. Similar to me, I'm going to foul him real hard. Right. Because there's not much else I can do. You know, Shaq, he just wanted to beat people but, up but in his last even... years. So it was and like, it, it worked. hey, people were follow so him over the pick, send him to me, because if he comes to the rim and I'm there, I'm going to try to hurt him. But so that was the strategy. All right. So teams, like, teams like didn't want to go. Teams didn't go anywhere close to that. And I think it would work just, I mean, it would work even better with Prime Shaq. <laughs> right? he, he I mean, people, t you, you feel him on the court. Oh, yeah. You feel him. And we, when I was at UCLA, he, he played, I played pickup in a game. You literally didn't even want to go, I'm 6'7". Um, <laughs> I thought I was going to get hurt. Like, I just was like, I don't want to play in this game. <laughs> I, I, I literally was like, why can he play? Like, he can't, you, you know, I mean, in his prime, you could not do anything. I mean, I talked no. to guys, I went to lunch with a client one time who was guarding Shaq that night in LA. And he, we were at Cheesecake Factory in Marina, which is a lot of people go to. And he ordered like some, he ordered like a, I forget what he ordered. He ordered like some, um, some alcoholic cocktail. And I go, don't you guys play tonight? And he, he's like, yeah, I got to guard Shaq, man. He's like, <laughs> so he ordered like another one. I said, you can't drink on the day of the game. He's like, I got Shaq, man. This can be hard. <laughs> but literally, like, you are, you are rendered like less than a man. Uh, I would, <laughs> and this guy was big. He was like six eleven. So. Different, different. Oh, it gosh. would work fine. It would work fine. <laughs> work well, that's fine. how the Bucks are playing now. Except Brook Lopez, I don't think, wants to hurt people. But that's it's, that's how they're playing now. And it's like, and that's how the Sixers play with Embiid. But to your point about the playoffs, like, yeah. all it takes is one bad matchup. One one guard who just needs a little bit less space to shoot that three, or one five man who can pick and pop with a really quick release. And like, you can't play that way anymore. Well, yeah, that's what I think. I mean, and then. Shooting in the playoffs. There's good shooters and they're great shooters. And and for us, we're lucky with even kept. We got we got three elite shooters, and like Paul could speak on this better than anybody. Some players' shots change in the playoffs. Some players' shots change with two minutes to go. Some players' shots change in the fourth quarter. The best in the world, that doesn't Don't bother change. them. Actually, they probably get better. Like wide open shot with five seconds to go. Paul, Steph Curry, Clay kept. Like they, you actually think it's going in. There's certain guys that, and, I, and there's certain really good shooters out there and you go, he's not making that shot. It's not their fault. It's just, that's what separates, you could call Steph a unicorn as a shooter, easily you could say that. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it just, 
it's 0 for 10. There's been games he's 0 for 10, um, and, and you're literally like most players in a pickup game. If you're 0 for, you're gone. I can't. It's not happening for me today. He'll make his next six. Um, it's just different. It's a different it's mentality. Different. Well, that's why all this stuff we're talking about team building and four shooters and three shooters, like that's the whole benefit of having like a top five, top ten player in the NBA is it gives you the luxury to not have the perfect team structure because that guy can do anything. I look at Harden. You know, we're talking about the MVP race and this and that, and everyone's saying, well, well, boy, the Bucks with four shooters around Giannis, like he's unstoppable. Harden, you can put a big man rolling to the rim. You can sometimes even put another big man hanging around. Like, it doesn't matter. That guy can score. You, you, can, you can finagle lineups around him, and he can still score. I'm just wondering which modern player is causing opponents to day drink now. I, mean, I don't think there is a guy. <laughs> oh, not that. Because that's a physical punishment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. I also right. want to know how much was he drinking the day after. Well, <laughs> that night. Couldn't get out of bed, I probably. Mean, although, like, you can't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I'm going to talk about Shaq a lot, but I, I don't know, like, when you're physically <laughs> and mentally That's not beaten. that player. That, that player doesn't, it's not another well, That's why Vlade found the only strategy that worked was just flop all the time. That was the only, that was, that, that was like, yeah, I'm just going to fall, I'm yeah. just going to fall over and hope he gets in foul trouble. That was the only thing he could do. I mean, as a human being, my daughter's Shaq came because they did, and he shook my little daughter's hand, and she looks up at this guy, and she, my daughter doesn't know, they don't, they don't know what's going on with the basketball, so she goes, who, who is that guy, daddy? Because, and she's met all her players, but she, she remembered that guy, I mean, he's just, a, you know, different, different, different deal. Um, all right, to, to put a bow just on the, the unicorn part of the discussion before we move on, um, if, if things keep moving in this direction, and seven-footers can handle the ball, bring it up, shoot three-pointers, and, and the 6'10 guys and everything. I mean, I don't know if we've ever had a moment where there's this many guys who do that. But, you know, Ben Simmons, Giannis, LeBron, all these guys who are in the league. It, it, I know there's a finite number of those people you know, in the world at any given time who are of that size, but is there a logical progression here where we get to a game where teams are just rolling out five guys who are between 6'8 and 7'1, and what does that say for the, the six-foot guard in the future of the NBA? It's not good for the no. guard. It never will be. It, 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 you it's don't, not their fault. Uh, yeah. It's just the basket's 10 feet tall. Now, I mean, look, the rules changes in the last 10 years have made it much better for those guys to start with. So, you know, you might have said the same thing in the, in the late 90s, and then there's a period in the 2000s and, and up to recently where those guys, the, the freedom of movement rules have made it much, yeah, much yeah, better yeah. for those guys. Than it was. Physicality is better for a six-foot player. So, all right, but but could we get to a point, like, or if if you had to, if you could build a team this way, and if if there are more and more guys who are skilled bigs keep coming along, could you and would you want to build a team that was nothing but six, eight, and up? Why would you not? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. No, no, it makes them less unicorny, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, if Steph Curry was six, eight, that'd be awesome. Um, what, I mean, am I missing something here? No, I think it'll be fascinating uh, yeah, you know, we talk uh, about how, how rare these skills are. It's like, the op- like everything you said about height, 10 feet basket, that's never going to change. Like, th- the reason this is taking so long is, like, when you have to dribble the ball that high, when you're that tall, it's, it's hard to have a handle like Steph Curry. And it, I'm, the way young players play now, we thought, well, will we ever see a shooter like Steph? Well, we're going to see guys trying to play that way. Will we ever see a seven-footer who can dribble? We're going to see guys trying to play that way. I'm interested to see how many seven-foot guys really can dribble yeah. like Giannis and pass like Giannis. Like Atlanta made the opposite bet with Trey Young. It's like, we're, what is he, six feet, six one? Like, and he's doing damage. Like that guy, because like, his handle and shooting is that good. Well, 
I think when you have the shorter guard, they also, one that can shoot, they dictate pace. I mean, there's rare where you're going to see guys like Ben Simmons with this kind of speed, LeBron with this kind of speed, Giannis that can handle with this kind of speed. So there, there are always going to be a need for that six foot, six three guard who can shoot, but also dictate the pace, you know, with great ball handling, who can navigate his way through the lane, uh, better than a guy who's six eight. When he gets into the lane, guys are reaching, knocking the ball out of his hands. So yep. there's, there's always going to be a need for that guard who's closer to the ground, that can navigate space, get into the, the nicks of the lane, and create plays for other people. Will we see sometime in the near future a team that rolls out a five-man, six-eight and up lineup? I mean, teams do it now. Sixers can put that lineup out there right now. Also, Milwaukee can put a lineup like that out there now, but not probably for long periods of time. Um, shifting to just the, the pure analytic side of this, uh, for, for Bob and Mike in particular, um, as far as we've come in the last 10 years, you know, everybody is doing at least something in this area now. Is, are there any advantages still left to explore without giving away the store, obviously, but are you, are you still finding edges uh, in this discussion internally that, that have not been exploited yet? We have worked on, for the last few years, developing a unicorn algorithm. That's <laughs> uh, not something I can talk a lot about, but it's, we have a safe, we lock it in there, um, <laughs> and we work algorithm. on it every day, and it's a 20-page document. I'm sure Zarin's got one of those, too. So it's, uh, no, but analytics are fascinating. I think that, um, you know, you have to, um, you have to figure out as an organization how much of the decision pie are the numbers. Um, but you'd be very naive to think they're not a good part of it. Um, you can argue, organizationally, you'll, you'll have arguments as to how much, and I know Danny and, and Mike are a perfect complement to each other, I think, as far as how to factor it in. I think if you have five people of your decision makers and they're all analytically driven, you, you, you may not be successful, but certainly having one or two or however many you want and then people that may subscribe to a little bit of a different theory. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating um, to see how analytics have, have grown, have changed the game. Um, and I think they're, they're not going anywhere. It's just a question of with a coach, you know, you can't hand your coach, especially in the regular season. Now, analytics, I think, are more valuable in the playoffs even. As far as tendencies, Second Spectrum's doing a great job with all these things. You can, you know, obviously what our players are doing physically, um, how we're able to measure those things, and I think that'll evolve with wearables. But um, it's hard on a back-to-back -back on the road to really understand what the other team's doing. You, you get a little bit of it, but you can't hand your coach 20 pages. Uh, but you can slowly over time, and I think, I think I'm sure Brad's great at, at, at processing it as well. Steve's very open to it, so it's, it, it works. It, it's hard for the rest of us who are light years behind, but um, I think that it's unnecessary. Yeah, we don't have the unicorn algorithm uh, going, but no. <laughs> Come on. The, uh, look, the, the trick, as always, is to get the best information for every decision you're making. And, um, you know, that's actionable. And, very much to Bob's point, and, and people here have said this before, you just can't change that much from night to night during the regular season, but over time you can change a lot of what you do. Uh, and then in the playoffs you can change a lot every night. Um, so we're just trying to get the best information we can for every decision, and the fact that we now have a bunch of years of good tracking data, which only very recently have we had sample sizes big enough to do stuff with, with that data, um, means there's a lot of advantages still to be gleaned 
just from learning things from information. And then, of course, this is always the point that gets made, right? Um, you know, integrating that into your organization such that it doesn't feel like something alien that's being plopped down on a piece of paper from outside uh, is another way to get it. You know, you know what I want to know? How does, how does analytics play into, like, the signage of, like, a free agent? Because say, like, you have a player, player X, he comes off the bench, he plays on a certain teams in a certain system, mm -hmm. his rebound rate is this, but also you have to remember he's coming off the bench and also he's playing against bench players, but you need to sign him as a starter. Mm -hmm. So how does that analytics affect all of that? Now I'm signing him to be a starter based on, and I'm looking at these analytics on what he did off the bench. He becomes to my team, he's a starter. Now he's playing against the best five off the bench. So how does this like all factor in? Like, does it, does it even mean anything? Yeah, so I mean, I think the answer is you can adjust for those things in a lot of different ways. One of which is good old fashioned, okay, just go watch the possessions. He was playing against the other team's starters and see what he did. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also some statistical things you can do. Um, but I mean, in free agency, it's such a constrained market. Nobody talks about this. Um, you have, especially if you're a team over the cap, you've only got a certain amount of money to spend. Um, it may be that it's a guy you're retaining and your option is overpaying him or paying someone the minimum because you don't have any cap exceptions left. You can sign a guy with bird rights or just sign a minimum guy. So people get upset at you for signing that contract with the guy. You know, we, we took some heat for the amount of money we paid Jeff Green at one point and the decision wasn't, is Jeff Green worth every dollar of that or not? It was between Jeff Green at dollar amount X and a guy we could sign for minimum. So you're making those, th those things come into play in free agency too, but specifically to your point, I mean, I think you, ha you absolutely have to adjust for that. And if you don't, you're making a big mistake. And the other thing is, I mean, I don't know how the Celtics do it, but we, we've actually tried to do a better job of this. Uh, I think the idea of pro personnel scouting. So for example, let's say you live in Boston. I ask you what, give me a player that you've seen that I haven't, because most GMs aren't pro personnel scouting. I know what the Celtics will do against us, we play them on Tuesday. The most I know about them will be, yeah, I watch them once in a while. But when they played us, that's what my lasting impression of the Celtics bench players. Very small sample size. It's a stupid thing to do to make decisions, but it happens a lot. Instead, I call Paul, who a guy that I trust, who maybe played in the league, maybe didn't. Hey, you watch this guy play 10 times. What do you think? And he says, let me look at my notes against this guy. And he's got, he's got 10 games. And do not ever underestimate the value of seeing someone in person do something in person, not TV. You don't hire somebody over the phone. You, you shouldn't, or on a video conferencing, or on a text message, or on an email. There's a reason why when you interview somebody and you hire them, you sit here and they sit there and you look at them, and you talk to them, and you get something to eat with them, and you watch their body language, and you see if they showed up on time, you see what they're dressing, you see how they communicate. That's the job when he's out there, when you're out there trying to, who should we sign as a free agent? Who should we draft? That's why you go to college games. Now, then he comes back and says, Mike, this is what I got. What, what do the numbers say? And, and Mike says, this, 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 and that. He says, all right, so what do we think then overall? That's how I think you should make a free agent decision, not just based on what you say, but based on what both sides say, an analytics-driven decision, and also a guy that you trust that says, I've seen this guy, I've seen our team, and I've seen this guy, and this is what I think. The, the problem Paul brings up is, is bigger than just starters versus bench, though, too, right? Mm -hmm. So someone who's playing for Golden State right now 
might play really differently if they're playing for the Celtics. Exactly. So different that's what I'm how do the contextual differences are, are really challenging. It's like a style of play over here to, compared to a different style. But, but the numbers say you. this. You right, so you need, but you need to understand very, very much that whatever information you have only exists in the context in which that information was, well, and, was, and was it gathered. It used to be like pace of play. Like, well, that, yeah. this guy's scoring 20 points. Well, their, their pace of play is highest in the league. Exactly. Well, this guy's scoring 10, but they play the slowest. Everybody got more rebounds in Phoenix back in the day because they were just going right, up sure. and down. So, exactly. But it looked like they were all really good yeah. rebounders. Yeah. All right, so do you guys have, do you have models that can then account for that now? Do you, can you more uh, intelligently assess that the, the, the context issue now than you could five or ten years ago. Do you do you have a way to to, to do that uh, analytically or with an algorithm or some some model that tells you how, what it looks like on your? So you can do it more intelligently to an extent. You can isolate the situations that the guy was in, sort of like what I was saying against the starters, mm -hmm. where these are the situations we think this guy will be in in our team. Um, and but the problem is. Where they're playing, they may not be in a lot of those situations. And then, then you really don't have that much useful information about the guy. Even if they play a lot there, they may not be playing anything like what you'd want them to play like for you. And so then you have to just lean on your experience. I honestly think that now, and this has been a good fortune, I mean, I don't think you want, and, and Mike knows this, Paul knows I mean, when you play in the playoffs, you learn so much about, I keep reverting back to that, but it's true. You learn so much about your own team, the opposing team, and you realize, and what I've maybe, maybe done bad or good, I don't, I'm still trying to figure it out, but like you'll sign a player in the off season now, I almost have to say that, that guy's for the regular season. That guy's for the playoffs. I think one of your players said something about that. 82 game players and 16 yeah, it, it, game it, players. And, it, and it's, it's, it's <laughs> in 16 if you win the whole, That's you get to play thing. them. You know, but, but, but I can tell you, he know, he know, this is the difference, this is the hard part of analytics. Mm -hmm. If I ask Paul, like he, he, if, I, if we went through the league right now, which I can't do up here, <laughs> He would say, <laughs> he would say, um, I say, what do you think of that guy? And Paul, because he played and knows that guy can't play in the playoffs. Yeah. And that would be it. End of conversation. Like, what, what, what do you mean? Can't play it. Can't do that playoffs. That's, that's sometimes the simplicity of it. Well, or, or like, I don't want to deal with that dude. That guy, he, he's, a, he's a problem in the playoffs. Well, you and I have talked about that over the years, like a couple in a couple of columns. Like, that's the, that's the good stats, bad team guy. Like, at some point, you'll have to sign a free agent who's never been in the playoffs. You've never seen him play in the playoffs because this team's been bad. I'm like, well, why is that? What does the data say about that? And most of the conversation about how is that guy going to fit on our team, our style of play, that's about offense, right? Like, defense, he's going to play defense. And somewhere in that tracking data is information about that we just don't know about, like some, something player X does on the floor or doesn't do on the floor that is more or less valuable on defense than we could ever realize. Like some, that, that tracking data is holding some secrets in there well, you that can look at level, some teams are gonna figure out. When you could, I don't know, I don't know, but I could say like, how good was, every team that Paul was on, how good were they defensively over his career? Like Iguodala is very good at that. Usually every team that Andre's been on has been good. Now you can't say it's all because of him, but mm -hmm. at some point in 12 years, all your teams are pretty good defense. Bogut was great at that. I mean, there's certain players, like I'm sure Garnett. I'm, I'm sure. I, I don't Never know. Never had a bad defense. But he probably always had an above average defensive team. Yeah. So some of it is, and I look at it like this, a guy like that guards more than his position. So like yeah. Andre, Paul, like they are, he beats his man, and all of a sudden Andre's halfway there. Draymond's good at that. They know, so, so you feel, they can guard more than their guy. And it's hard enough to just guard your guy. And that's what KG was probably so great. You felt him Everywhere. three positions Everywhere. away. Everywhere. And that's what, so you'd say, well, why is his team always a good defensive team? You go, well, that's why he's guarding more than one guy. 
you know, and, and how do you quantify that? How do you view it? Well, almost in aggregate by saying his teams are good defensively. Every team he's on has been good defensively. The, the good, I mean, to, to this point, like the good analyst says we don't have information on that. Doesn't try to say, well, here's what we, I mean, if you have a good estimate of what the guy might do, maybe you'll say something different. But if, if you really don't, trying to, trying to say you do is not, is not a good thing to do. Um, last topic I want to hit here, <clears throat> hit here before we get to the, uh, the Q&A part. Um, the the proliferation of, of three-pointers the last several years, this explosion, uh, the, the average just keeps going up league-wide, um, team level, player level. Where's this going? Is there, is there a natural um, endpoint to this? Uh, is, is there any concern over it? I've heard at least some murmurings uh, of concern around the league about it, it, what's, what's too much, um, whether it's just the homogeneity of the league or whether it's just, you know, that, that this is going to, I don't know, distort things somehow. But there is at least some concern out there. Do you have any concerns? Where do you think this is going? We need Daryl up here on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Did you write the article on the Bucks? How they defend? No, that wasn't me. Was, that was Ben Falk. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the three-point shot. Sorry. Every three-pointer is not a good three-pointer. Is what well, or, is this a, what was, or is this a one-year Yeah, or, or is it a one-year thing? I don't I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd really defer to Paul. Like, playing ba basketball, we can make it. It's a simple thing. So the three-point shot, I think the best thing it does is if you're good at it and you're defending a guy that can mm -hmm. shoot, you have to get out there. So that creates space. If I'm guarding a guy in any level of basketball, third grade, high school, and my guy can't shoot, you better believe that's an easy guy to guard. I don't got to worry about running out there, and it makes our defense better. So it's not just shooting it, it's making it. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, you play, you, you watch wow. now, you play. Paul was on a team I mean, in 1999 that took like almost as many threes as teams are now. 2000. 2000, all right. Um, yeah, I think it's here. I think it's here to stay because of the way the rules and the way the game is played. It's more geared toward the offensive players. So you, you have an advantage if you have a guy who can not only shoot the three, but I can dribble and get to the, to the basket. But the way the offense is, like, you can't have a player that just kind of like, he, he, he's in the way if he can't shoot anymore. So you want as much of the lane to be open as possible. And that creates for easier opportunities at the rim, easier three-point shots. And until we find the next team who can win a different way, if you have that next team who wins a championship playing a post of style, this is what it's gonna be. Like I said, this is a copycat league. Every team tries to emulate the previous champion. You know, if you watch Golden State and you watch probably half the teams in the league, half the teams in the league are trying to run their offense. They run the exact same plays but call them a different name. That's what happened when San Antonio won, when we won the next year, we're hearing teams calling out our plays, running the same thing. And until you find that next champion who can do it a different way, this is the era that we're in today. The Spurs for like 30 games having an elite offense and not shooting threes was kind of interesting and it didn't it didn't last and they were they were always I think better with their bench guys in to shoot threes but for a while it looked like the Spurs were sort of actually making hay by just going completely the other way on offense. Their that defense has been bad all season, but offense. That, are we getting to the point, or have we already gotten to the point where it's actually impossible? Can, like, can you be in a, 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 a really good to great team being in the bottom third in, in three points? I mean, look at, we played, was it game, you guys, game seven last year against the Rockets. They, they took a ton of threes and didn't, didn't make them. Um, were they bad shots? Should they not have taken them? 
I think the thing that we have to always remember is there's times when you shoot the three that it's working. And I think we're seeing now is this no, no 20 point lead is safe. Mm-hmm. That's the new thing about yeah. games are much higher variance yeah, now than they used to crazy. be. The yeah. three point shot. So you look at that game and you go, I think what we're missing a little bit is, and this is why the great players like Michael Jordan, or I think there, there's certain guys that go down in a possession and go, we're down 10, we have to get points. That's what I think the league might be missing now is like down 10, a step back three. Okay, I guess. But what about like, I think Jordan was fantastic. You knew he was going to get fouled. Let's get to the free throw line. Let's cut 10 to eight. Let's not get 10 to be 13, 15. Also set your defense. Set your defense, right. So I think we get a little loose with the three. Um, Is it bad? That doesn't mean it's bad. But in a playoff game, sometimes you you have to just score. I mean, like I said, with the Rockets last year, a couple of those games, talk about scoring, and, and us and the Rockets were probably two of the highest scoring teams. A couple of those playoff games, 99-94, mm-hmm. 98. It's different, man. Like, you cannot and, – and, and by the way, your legs are tired. You're playing 42 minutes. You're chasing guys. You're fighting for every rebound. You don't have the same legs. That's how you miss three-point shots. So there's all these things that we learn and evolve with where you better believe – you got a shack on your team, we got to throw them the ball. Dunk, get fouled, get at least one point, maybe average one and a half points of possession. So I think it's here, but I don't know if it's exactly where it should be. Uh, time for a few uh, questions before we go. Um, for Paul, as a player, how much data is too much data? When do you start tuning it out? Um, well, it, it wasn't quite the same, you know, for me coming in. So it's a lot, it's a lot different, but I think more data is taken in in the playoffs when you have time. It's tough to when you have a game on a Friday night and then a Saturday night. So, you know, basically the data that you're taking in is just like basically my, my player likes to go right. He shoots this from three. Um, he's great in the post. So it, it's not like force him to mid-range or make him shoot threes. It's just like basic data that you get on an everyday basis for the regular season. You get more data in the playoffs. Now I know that he likes to go left and step back or fade away. He likes this area of the court as a red spot. This area of court is a green spot, meaning he's hot here, maybe he's cold here. Uh, you watch more film, but it's less time to prepare when you're done at 11, you get on a one o'clock flight and you have to get up and shoot around. I, I want to sleep on the flight. I don't want to watch film and read all this stuff. I just learned that Paul looked at the stuff we gave him during the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the playoffs, not regular season. <laughs> Mike, Mike, are you? <laughs> but, but like Doc was really good at this, and Brad is too, of the communication to the players is the same type of stuff. We yeah. just, we're just more right about what we're saying now. The, the, the coaches will distill stuff down into, into things that the players are good. But, but also like... The availability of video is really different. Like that's yeah. data too for a player. Now everybody's, you know, we, everybody's got an iPad with yeah. the guy. The guys are going to be guarding in their last 50 possessions, and you can watch that and see pretty clearly. Right. Hopefully, if you're doing a good job of curating the video, you know what the opponent's going to be doing. Mike, are, are you? So why aren't the defenses getting better? Well, the rule changes changed that a lot, and the offenses have gotten smarter about threes. It's right. just, it's it's hard it's hard to uh, it's hard to defend a modern NBA offense. Mike, are, are you guys giving your players more or different, I assume at least different, data now than when Paul was playing? I assume that, and, and, and is the modern player or the younger player now more receptive because they've actually come into an environment where this is now the norm? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of 
when you say give the players data, I, I think we're, we're probably not giving them big spreadsheets of, of stats. I think just the easy availability of video on topics that are important to each guy, and it just shows up on their iPad. They don't have to plug into anything. We have to gather the tablets. Remember when we started with yeah. those tablets that one year? It was, it was awkward getting them from guys and people losing them and things. And, um, you just don't... Everybody's used to having technology around them and watching video instantly all the time now. So there's no tech humps. And then it's just a matter of curating what information you, know, you most think the players need. And um, so, so, yeah, that's changed a lot. But I would say so much of it's in, in video form. Um, you know, as you get to the playoffs, I don't think we're doing too much differently in terms of quantity, but the quality is much, much different now that we have the tracking data. Another question from the audience. Um, since investment in analytics is at a point of diminishing returns, I don't know if you would accept that or not, but if they are, <laughs> uh, what are front offices looking to as the next opportunity to gain an advantage? Get a top five player, <laughs> then get a top 10 player, yeah. then you have a chance at winning, period. It's the most tried and true formula period. there is. But it's trying to get that player. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> You know, another trend is to focus on injury stuff yeah. and, uh, and medical and sports science. I mean, it's science. like baseball. I mean, I don't know. Baseball, obviously, is, I think, further along and probably should be. It's a more controlled environment. But even baseball doesn't – fans of baseball would say, they took out the pitcher after 70 pitches. Well, why is that? Well, I, I guess, is his arm tired? I mean, and, and you could argue analytically, well, this guy's production falls off after 70 pitches. But in a playoff game, that guy comes out, and often the manager is second-guessed. The next guy comes in, gives up some hits, and the other pitcher, the, the guy that got took it, I could have kept going, I was fine. Well, how do you really know how tired a guy's arm was? Maybe if you have a wearable, it's like his shoulder is throwing, and now you can look at velocity. But in the NBA, it's almost like this load management stuff. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I mean, we can look at, at how far Clay Thompson ran the night before, and he's, he's not running as much and as hard, but coming back from an injury, we set these arbitrary numbers. Your, your minute limit is 15. Why is, it, why is it 15? Why isn't it 18? Why isn't it 12? Why isn't it 20? So maybe in that category, we'll be able to say he comes back from a knee injury. Let's put something there that says he's weakening, he's weakening. Okay, he's going to be on a limit until this skin goes in the red, he's out of the game. But we're not at that point. We're not even allowed to do those things. Uh, one more here from the audience. From a GM's perspective, do you think data is more powerful in evaluating your own roster or your opponent's? I don't, like, we approach these things decision by decision. So, I mean, it depends on the importance of the particular decision. Like, signing a free agent's a really important sort of one-time thing. What, what plays work well with which lineups is also important. It's hard to, like, those things are difficult to compare. And then the value of data in analyzing them, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because I'm not sure how... Like, we want to put the most resources towards the most important decisions. So that's sort of what we do every day. I think you should know your own team. We, want, we play 100. You certainly can control your own you, team you, more, you, right? And you also should have a sense of it, too. Um, just like a player should know his teammates. After 100 games or playing together, yeah. I can hand him anything and be like, Rondo likes to hand you the ball here. You go, I know that. Play with him 500 games. You say, well, the numbers say, I don't need that. But the opponents, you may not know as well. Yeah. Um, You'd like to know them as good as you know yourself, but that's where the numbers might be. But I don't know that there's a great answer for that. 
I think we got time for another one or two here. Um, you guys kind of touched on this earlier, and I think it's an interesting topic. Since the playoffs are a different animal, uh, do front offices actually categorize and research players as playoff guys versus regular season guys? Is that something that you actually are you know, hyper-conscious of as, as you're acquiring players, knowing it going in? Mm, that's good. We, we talk that way yeah. sometimes, but I don't think we're trying to quantify it so much. It's hard. I mean, I don't, that's a harder one, like you said, to quantify. But, but I promise you, again, I keep referring. I didn't play in the, I don't know, but Paul knows. <laughs> I mean, he, you can smell blood. When you're in a playoff game and they checked in a guy on him and Paul looks at him and goes, this, this guy cannot guard me. Like, end of story. Well, it's like that with every guy. Well, but, 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 but I would say this. So, and as the opponent. Felt that way, I guess. You, you, here's what you want to avoid. Like, this is what, and a player, and a, as a front office, you'll be watching a game in the playoffs, and all of a sudden, the other team will find a matchup to exploit your weakest link. And you'll be watching that possession, and immediately it'll be, Paul will be on him, one of your weakest, and you'll be like, damn it. You know it's not going to end well. Or maybe he misses a wide open shot, but he's going to get to where he wants to go. So in the playoffs, I think the more uncomfortable a player can make his opponent, either offensively or defensively, there's some great players that were strictly defensive players that I'm not sure a lot of players bothered Paul because he was pretty good at getting to his spot and great size. But I, if he's being honest, he would say, like, there'd be certain matchups, and maybe it was the mentality of his opponent. It'd be the start of a seven-game series. The guy comes over, shakes his hand, and Paul looks at the guy and goes, I got to deal with this motherfucker the whole series? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> LeBron. LeBron. Right, right. And, but, and then there's guys where he looks and is like, I can do this. It, I don't know what that, I don't know how you quantify that. Well, stuff. every year we play LeBron, once we got past him, it was like downhill. It was like perfect. <laughs> it was like whoever I matched him after that was like nothing. I think the guys who can't shoot are almost more interesting. Like, because you think of like what you guys did to Tony Allen all those years ago, just totally ignoring him. How, where, where is the line where a guy who completely can't shoot, a perimeter guy who can't shoot, is still able to be useful and be on the court? Like Robertson, for instance, has always been more playable in the postseason than I thought he would be. Smart, although he's shooting well this year, has always been more playable than I thought he would be, no matter how defenses are. I think that's the more interesting kind of question like that. We do talk about this stuff a lot, though. Like, who's he going to guard on Milwaukee? Who's he or, guard? or you say, like, that guy can't play in this series. Right. You yeah. can't play in this series. But in these other two series, you yeah, can't play, so we still want them. We have that It's like a middle reliever. Now yeah. basketball is becoming, this is where analytics is interesting. Now baseball, you've got a guy that comes in and pitches to one batter. Well, now in basketball, you have to build a roster where I've got to build a roster where we can defend a strong post player and one that has to go against a mobile five. But in that series, he can play. In that series, they can't. And the best guys play in every series. Right. So. Mm -hmm. And the clock has gone past zero. We're now going on to the other side. I don't, <laughs> counting upward again. I think that means we're done. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you all for coming. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.